Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 203 of the Swell Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Lindsay Parker. She received her master's degree in communication disorders from the University of Texas, Dallas in 2008. She has worked in acute care, outpatient, and inpatient rehab. She received her fees competencies from both Baylor University and UTSW starting in 2013. She currently works as a mobile fees endoscopist, fees educator, and account specialist for Carolina Speech Pathology. She is a guest lecturer for the University of of Texas, Dallas, and Loyola University's Advanced Dysphagia Master's Level courses. Lindsay was featured on the Swallow Your Pride podcast, episode 172, with her sister, who is a registered dietitian, and she is thrilled to be back. So, hope you guys all love this episode. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Lindsay. Good morning. Welcome back. Thank I'm so you. excited to have you back on the show. Yes. Thank so Lindsay you so was much. on episode 172 with her sister, actually. Um, her sister is a registered dietitian. So it was it was an awesome conversation. I didn't really know what to expect. I, I guess I shouldn't expect anything less than awesomeness from my guests, but regardless, they were, they were a great pair. So go back and and listen to that episode. If you did not hear it because her sister Morgan had some just great tips, um, just some great points, you know, from dietitians that we don't consider that I think it's so important for us to get outside of our own little bubble and consider what other people are doing and how we can, you know, all work together to help our patients the best. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so that being said, Lindsay, you know, tell the people who you are again, if people don't know you. Sure. So I'm Lindsay Parker and I am a speech language pathologist. 
I went to the University of Oklahoma for undergrad and the University of Texas at Dallas for grad school, um, graduated in 2008. And then I went to work for a major hospital system in Dallas, Texas, and worked across the continuum in acute care and patient rehab outpatient, day neuro, kind of did all the things. Um, And then while I was in acute care, especially became, got my competencies in both modified barium swallow studies and fees. Um, And now I do mobile fees for Carolina speech pathology and long-term care uh, settings mostly, um, and also do um, account management and some um, sales as well for Carolina speech. Awesome. 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 All right. So what are we going to talk about today? Today is what's going to sound like the most dry topic ever, (laughs) billing and reimbursement in skilled nursing settings. And it's, I'm going to try to make it as fun as possible. Um, It's definitely not an area that I think everybody's like, woohoo, can't wait to talk about billing and reimbursement and money and, you know, all those things. Um, But it is an extremely important topic because we have to know how to merge our clinical understanding with what our patients need, with the financial understanding of what's important to the people that we are speaking to when we're advocating for services. To as much as we want to put apart and make them separate from one another, and um, that's just not the way that our healthcare system works. So we have to really have a nice understanding of both sides of the coin so that we can best advocate for our patients. Um, so that is our topic for today. And um, I am also doing a live webinar on this topic on December 7th. So I can at the end kind of go through some more information on that. But okay, awesome. um, if people are interested and want to get CEUs to gain some more understanding under this topic, then y'all can join me then. Um, and get some CEUs while you're at it. And it's free. So all good things. Um, Okay. So first thing I wanted to go into is why sniff billing is so confusing. Yeah. Yep. And I think that, you know, first of all, having worked in a multitude of settings, billing and reimbursement and a sniff works totally different than billing and reimbursement and other settings. So reimbursement for services provided in skilled nursing are subject to mega regulatory restrictions. And I'll talk about why that is in just a minute. Um, As I said, it's important that we as speech language pathologists have a solid understanding of how and why the billing works so that we can best advocate for our services. Uh, I did want to say that you guys, I am not a huge finance person. I do not enjoy talking about budgets and money and cash flow. Just ask my husband. <laughs> Those are not topics that typically excite me. Um, but mo- and much like most, if not all of you guys, you know, I'm a therapist who just wants to focus on helping my patients reach their goals, right? However, I have somewhat reluctantly realized over the years that I can't fully show up for my patients and get them the access to what they need and to what I need to form an effective treatment plan unless I understand the billing and reimbursement and the payment methodology that keeps the lights on in the setting in which I'm working. So even when I've been able to rattle off millions of clinical reasons why a patient might need a swallow study and a sniff, 
I'm just never able to get as far as when I can tie in those financial advantages as well. And the good news is there's tons of financial advantages for SNFs when they have access to Swallow studies, especially mobile services. So being able to merge those clinical points and those financial points should hopefully help with getting those Swallow study requests off the ground when you are in a SNF setting. So why are there so many reimbursement regulatory restrictions in SNFs? Well, let's jump in this time machine. We're going to travel back in time and go through a little history lesson because as boring as it may sound, it's important to really figure out why we are where we are today with the billing and reimbursement practices. So it all started in 1965 when Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Social Security Amendments of 1965 into law. So this is the law that created Medicare and Medicaid. Prior to this, individual states were the preferred administrators of health insurance instead of the federal government, which created a lot of gaps and discrepancies from state to state. And private health insurance plans became really popular in the 1950s. um, And those were also regulated at the state level. So Leading into the 1960s, healthcare reformers saw a gap in healthcare coverage for individuals who were pulling from Social Security. So, our Social Security beneficiaries, as we know, are going to be older people. Um, these were people who are no longer able to work, so they have lost their health insurance from their employer. And private insurers didn't want to pick them up for coverage because, sadly, due to their age, they're old and they were considered a risky investment for the insurance companies. So there was a gap in, you know, who I call my people, <laughs> the, you know, the, the elderly people um, who really needed coverage, weren't able to get it. And so healthcare reformers thought, okay, this is an opportunity to really bring in coverage for this group of people, and we can start to mandate this at our federal level. So all of that started to kind of turn um, within Congress in the 50s um, and in the 60s. Yes. So after a lot of back and forth at the federal level, Medicare was put in place in 1965. Then we fast forward to the 80s. And a couple of significant things happened, not just with our hair and our outfit choices, but also significant events that created astronomical increases to post-acute health expenditures. First, there were multiple class action lawsuits that opened up inclusion for more services that Medicare had to cover and also loosened the criteria for beneficiaries to qualify for post-acute services. So now we have this influx of people uh, be, you know, able to receive more services than they were able to receive in the past and be able to enter post-acute settings under this coverage that wasn't available to them prior to these uh, class action lawsuits. And on top of that, the payments to providers shifted from reimbursing the actual costs of delivering services. So otherwise, we usually call this a fee-for-service model. That shifted to per-case payments 
that were determined by diagnoses. So that shift in reimbursement and payment at the acute care level happened in the 80s. So the obvious problem that we've seen, you know, hindsight is 2020 um, with that model is that if a hospital receives a flat rate for, let's say they receive $1,000 to care for a patient with a stroke diagnosis, and it costs the hospital $200 a day to care for that patient, well, obviously the hospital is going to generate revenue by discharging that patient prior to day five. So where do patients go when they're discharged from the hospital and they haven't healed yet? (laughs) They go into post-acute settings. Um, And we're talking about both skilled nursing and going home, but with home health services. So there is an article about reforming Medicare payment by McCall et al. And it talks about how from 1990 to 1996, expenditures increased by 350% for home health care agencies and almost 400% for skilled nursing facilities. And that mega increase in those expenditures were all a result of those changes that happened in the 80s. So then everybody started to freak out. Everyone was questioning the viability of Medicare and also questioning the possibility of fraud and abuse of the system that was happening by providers. So at this point in time in the 80s and early 90s, skilled nursing facilities were allowed to build Medicare for services that were provided by contracted healthcare providers, which made the government's head spin because they were not able to keep up with the payments that were coming out of Part A funds and Part B funds for that same patient. So prior to the late 90s, if a, let's say, mobile fees provider saw a skilled nursing resident for a test, the SNF would bill Medicare Part A to get reimbursed for the service And the mobile fees provider would bill Medicare Part B to get reimbursed for the same test completed on the exact same patient. So, yeah, what a mess. Um, I can't say that that was all intentional and that people were intentionally just, you know, out there creating fraud. But um, I think that just the lack of communication between the Part A and the Part B reimbursement just kind of cycled into this huge mess where Medicare was paying out double for the same service on the same patient. So the government solution to prevent this double billing problem came into effect under the Balanced Budget Act of 1997, which introduced consolidated billing as part of the skilled nursing payment model. So that takes us from the 50s up to today, let's go into what consolidated billing is exactly um, and why it's important to us. So consolidated billing mandates that payment for services provided to beneficiaries in a Medicare-covered SNF stay have to be bundled into a daily rate instead of every single service getting billed separately to Medicare, like what was happening back in the day. Entities who provide the services to beneficiaries in a SNF are not allowed to bill separately for the services anymore. So 
this mandate prohibits a speech pathology swallow study provider from billing Medicare for the SLP portion of a swallow study completed on a SNF resident. The consolidated billing requirements make the SNF responsible for billing the entire package of care that residents receive under a Part A stay. So how do SNFs bill Medicare for Part A stays? Well, that is where PDPM comes into play and completion of that minimum data set that is filled out at admission for every patient. The minimum data set's purpose is to capture how complex the patient's care will be, and then Medicare will give the SNF a daily amount of money to care for that patient based on the complexity of their needs. That's the theory, at least. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think the most important thing about the way that these per diem rates are calculated is accurate coding. Do not stress that enough, right? So if we're missing out on a patient's dysphagia and not coding them as having swallowing deficits or needing modified diets, um, et cetera, et cetera, at admission, then the SNF won't be receiving that extra chunk of money to care for that patient who has extremely complex needs. So being involved in that whole process at the front end as a speech language pathologist is critical. Yep. Yep. And something that I, that I know, Lindsay, that I was talking about, I did a workshop on evidence-based practice last week. And one of the things that we were talking about when we were going through PDPM and things like that is that they, they found that the rates are actually, or, or that the therapy services are a third lower than before PDPM was put into play. So basically we're doing a good job of coding people accurately, but we're now not providing the services to meet that level of need. So is that because we coded them too high to begin with and they really aren't that acutely ill or did we code them appropriately and we're just not meeting their therapy needs? So I know that's something else that to me, when I was reading through some different reports and things, I was like, oh my gosh, what, what is this? So really just opened my eyes to such a gap. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There is such a gap. And I think that I hear, you know, professionals who know way more about the coding than I do have said that potentially in the past, the accurate coding sadly didn't really matter, right? Because everything was calculated based on the therapy minutes. So patients, you know, who could reach that ultra high rug were receiving more money for the SNF to care for. So I think that that just discouraged us from really digging in and figuring out what the exact diagnoses were, getting the ICD-9s or 10s, uh, you know, really hammered out for these patients and, and screening people out as well who potentially didn't qualify or didn't need the services. Um, that wasn't really a focus leading up to PDPM. So I can understand why it's been such a challenge to feel that we really are getting the funds that we need to care for our patients. And in a little while, I want to really touch pretty heavily on how expensive dysphagia is to treat and care for, um, because it is a super expensive diagnosis. And we, we know that based on the literature. And I think, again, there is a huge gap there with 
everybody's understanding, you know, at a leadership level, um, at a facility, and just really understanding that these patients are, you know, have a very expensive diagnosis that they're dealing with, kind of tie that into how that impacts doing and what we're able to do with and without having access to swallow studies, especially. So yeah, PDPM, getting a daily rate to care for these patients. And that is how reimbursement basically works under Part A. Um, For Part B, we know that things shift a little bit um, under Part B services, but even when patients are outside of their Part A benefits and still needing to reside in a skilled nursing facility, therapy services are still subject to consolidated billing. So that tends to confuse a lot of people. Um, A lot of people who are savvy about consolidated billing on the Part A side of things don't realize that therapy services still fall under consolidated billing on the Part B side as well. So there's a lot of services that can be billed directly to Medicare once a patient has exhausted their Part A benefits and they're reserving Uh, they're receiving services under Part B, uh, but therapy services are still subject to consolidated billing. So what does that mean? If an outside provider is coming in to do any sort of a therapy service on a skilled nursing resident who is not there under a Part A stay and they're receiving Part B benefits, the therapy services still have to be billed out to Medicare by the SNF. So a outside therapy provider, and I usually say swallow study providers are the prime example. So your mobile fees providers, as well as your mobile MBS providers, since there's still that speech pathology code for an MBS, um, is subject to consolidated billing and has to be billed directly to skilled nursing. And then the skilled nursing facility can bill out directly to Medicare to get reimbursed for those exams. I feel like that's where, where a lot of nursing home administrators or, or rehab directors get so confused because they're like, well, why can't, you know, the podiatrist comes in and can bill Medicare directly. Why can't you do it? There's There are different specialties that they can bill directly. However, we are under the therapy umbrella, which is under the consolidated billing umbrella. So usually when, when you say it like that, they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Right, so yes. And I've had to send direct information from CMS, a lot of times to individuals who it's not that they don't believe me, but they've just, they're so used to all these other, you know, their mobile x-ray, chest x-rays. And like you said, podiatrists, they're so used to those providers being able to build direct for the part B's that they're like, wait a minute, you're a provider too. What's going on? So then we have to really dig in and show that documentation Um, that Medicare would reject a bill that came directly from a therapy provider um, and say, nope, we can't pay this out. You have to turn to the SNF to get reimbursed for doing that test. And then the SNF can bill us for that. And I like to point out that um, in the claims, oh gosh, the claims processing manual for Medicare, you know, it's interesting because The CMS doesn't get in the middle of how a SNF contracts with an outside provider to come in and do these services. So CMS could care less how much the SNF is negotiating in terms of their payment or their payment terms. 
when they are contracting an outside provider to come in to do their swallow studies. And the Medicare claims processing manual states that, you know, for any Part A or Part B service that is subject to SNF consolidated billing, so your swallow studies, the SNF must either furnish the service directly with its own resources or obtain the service from an outside entity under an arrangement contract. Under such arrangement, the SNF must reimburse the outside entity for those Medicare-covered services that are subject to consolidated billing. So as I said, Medicare does not prescribe those actual terms of the SNF's relationship with its suppliers. They want to stay out of it. The SNF has to find that contracted provider, negotiate the terms, put a service agreement in place, and then they're, they're ready to rock. So if a patient needs a swallow study, the SNF either has to provide the service directly with its own resources. And just a little notation here that there's definitely not an option in the claims processing manual that says, hey, just don't do the test at all, <laughs> right? So CMS says either provide it in-house or find somebody that can do it. If the patient needs it, those are the choices. Yep. I get a lot of questions about sending patients out to a hospital for modified barium swallow studies. And if that's a way to get around consolidated billing and no, the sending the patient out to the hospital for a modified barium swallow study does not bypass consolidated billing mandates. So billing for your part A patients, billing for the technical components and the therapy codes for a modified still applies. So if they're a SNF resident, they're a SNF resident, no matter where they're going to get the tests completed. And, you know, there's additional added costs to sending patients out to the hospital. So we're looking at costs of transportation to get them there, loss of staff productivity, costs associated with wait times, and this patient's medical status could deteriorate while they're waiting to get assessed, which is uh, not good. Uh, that could result in a preventable, preventable hospital readmission, which we all know is super expensive. And then all those NPO and thick and liquid costs, and we'll talk about those more in just a little bit. Uh, the longer a patient is waiting for a study in order to advance off of thick and liquids and NPO status, that is a lot of money that the facility is spending on maintaining those diet restrictions. Um, not to mention if the patient comes back from the hospital with a small incomplete report. Oh my gosh, you guys, I, I see y'all posting these reports that you get back from the hospital because typically you're only getting the radiologist's report. You're not even getting the speech pathologist's report. Uh, from that hospital swallow study. And there's really nothing you can do with the report that says, you know, penetrated nectar, thick liquids recommend honey and puree. I mean, that just, what are we going to do with that? Um, so I, I, I kind of deem that a total waste of time and money, you know, sending somebody out for a test and then the report doesn't translate into a treatment plan for you and your patient, then, you know, why spend money on that at all? So that's kind of where we are with sending patients out to the hospital. It's, I know for some of us, that may be our only option, and we just have to do the best we can with building those relationships with the hospital speech pathologists. Um, I see a lot of you posting things that, you know, you've got the cell phone number for the hospital SLP, and you're getting a radiologist report and then having to reach out to the hospital SLP directly and build and foster that relationship so that you can get 
the information that you need to move forward. So kudos to all of you that are in those types of situations, because I know that takes so much extra time. And I know that's not counting towards your productivity, um, but ultimately you're, you're really putting them the work to get what your patient needs. So I think that's awesome. I think uh, what I'd like to touch on next is just pointing out again that swallow study providers are required to bill the facility direct for swallow studies. So by that, I mean the for fee studies for sure, since they're a therapy service through and through. For our modified barium swallow study, the professional components and therapy component of that exam will be billed uh, to the facility direct for the Part A patients. And then for the Part B, it's that SLP portion is still subject to consolidated billing. So um, I know sometimes you're trying to get a contract in place that you're building and you can't get even as far as somebody saying, well, we're not going to contract with anyone that bills us directly. Mm -hmm. Legally, that's the way that it has to go down. Um, So I think that in those cases, if that's where you're getting blocked, going through all of this consolidated billing information would hopefully be really helpful to get everybody on the same page. Um, And then we can go into some more specifics that highlight the financial value of having access to Swallow Studies so that you can tie that in as well. So I will touch on that. And then that should kind of wrap up for everything that I wanted to hit on for today. Um, And like I had mentioned, we'll get into some more details too when we do our webinar. Um, You know, technically our Med-A patients should be receiving a little bit more money from Medicare uh, to treat that diagnosis. It might not quite be matching the amount that we need to treat it. um, But when we're coding our patients, you know, they are receiving a bit more to care for someone who has dysphagia you know, the presence of dysphagia adds over 40% to overall healthcare costs. So yes, swallow studies are a part of those costs because they're required to treat the diagnosis. Um, But if we want to have success with these patients, avoiding a swallow study isn't going to get us anywhere. And we know we misdiagnosed at bedside alone, which leads to more expenses We know that a cough response alone or lack thereof does not always rule in or rule out aspiration, let alone tell us anything about pathophysiology. We know that nursing home residents are largely unable to accurately self-report swallowing difficulties. All of that is in the literature. Uh, We know that ASHA's adult dysphagia practice portal now specifically states that non-instrumental assessment of swallowing is insufficient to develop effective treatment options and prevent consequences of dysphagia, such as dehydration, malnutrition, pneumonia, and death. So now let's put all of this into numbers. Um, You're probably thinking, man, Lindsay really wasn't lying that she doesn't enjoy financials because she hasn't brought up a single numeral this whole time. And that's kind of what we're here to talk about. So, okay, fine. I'm going to do it because this is where the rubber meets the road. So let's start off with the number $289. And $289 is the average cost of thickened liquids per month per resident. So if you have a patient on thickened liquids through the course of their part A 100 day stay, that's $1,000 that the facility is spending on just thickened liquids. You can take a look at your facility and multiply that by the number of patients you currently know are on thickened liquids at your building 
to show facility leadership how expensive dysphagia is and why you need quick access to swallow studies to get your patients advanced um, off of those thickened liquids as quickly as possible. So once they're advanced, those costs disappear and the patient's much happier. Uh, we all win, right? <laughs> We're able to do that. Less cost to the facility, happier patient. And we feel successful because we were able to help our patient meet their goals. So win, win, and win. Um, okay, another number here, $2,583. So $2,583 is the average cost of NPO per month per resident. Um, I bring this up a lot and it shocks people. It shocks people who are have worked in skilled nursing for years and years and years. Uh, nurses who have been in leadership roles for a long time. When you really look at that number, it is shocking that it, that's the expense of yeah. caring for somebody who's NPO. Yeah. So again, I think it's important, you know, we can't just assume that our uh, facility leadership understands and knows these numbers. Um, they'll probably be shocked to see that. And that can help really tie in why we need swallow studies to help formulate a plan to get the patient off of that NPO status and cut that cost out, hopefully for our facility. Let me ask you, Lindsay, what, what is your rebuttal for those facilities that say we'd rather keep them NPO because we get reimbursed more because they're more acutely ill because they do have a feeding tube? That's a great question. So for the speech pathology portion of what's being coded under PDPM, which is going to include mechanically altered diets, um, I can't really speak to the feeding tube portion, but the speech pathology portion does stay the same for the patient's entire stay. So um, if they are coded as having dysphagia and needing a mechanically altered diet, so if they're on a feeding tube yet receiving pleasure feeds or they're doing therapeutic you know, PO trials, then that is coded as a mechanically altered diet. Um, and that amount will stay the same even when the patient is advanced to regular texture, stem liquids. Um, and once they're discharged from speech therapy caseload, that number will still stay the same. So I'm always a big fan of trying to show that the faster we can get a patient off of our caseload, uh, the more money the facility will raise. We're not even going to see the patient anymore, and they're still receiving that extra additional uh, money. So um, that's a big piece of what I speak to, as well as you can pull up numbers on hospital readmissions due to PEG tubes alone. So PEG site infections leading to readmissions, people pulling out their PEG tubes leading to a hospital readmission. Um, I think that looking at those numbers will um, kind of help show that it's ultimately going to be more expensive to just keep a patient on a tube and not want to advance them just for the sake of reimbursement. Yep. So speaking of hospital readmissions, the average cost of a 30-day rehospitalization is about 30 grand. And 78% of all 30-day SNF rehospitalizations are due to associated effects of dysphagia. So you've got your pneumonia, your dehydration, your malnutrition, just to name a few. Um, so patients with suspected swallowing difficulties that could be contributing to these effects need our assessment. And if we're suspecting airway invasion or pharyngeal involvement, then it's swallow study time. And you can go as far as asking your facility to show you those uh, 
you know, that number of how many 30-day rehospitalizations have occurred in the past year, and then calculate the actual number of expenditures. So, you know, if there were three possible readmissions that happened within that first 30 days over the past year, then that's $90,000 that the facility is responsible for. And we should also keep in mind that rehospitalizations impact the five-star rating. Um, so the quality rating for the building. So that's not just for the skilled side, but also the long-term care side. Uh, CMS is tracking how many rehospitalizations occur, and then they will uh, use whatever formula that they use to show if there's tons of rehospitalizations happening, then that's a pretty good indicator that the patients aren't getting the care that they need. So that will make the uh, five-star rating go down for that facility. Um, and then that can affect occupancy rates, which again affects the cash flow. So those are all important things to bring up. Um, and you know, I should probably say I'm not saying that a swallow study would prevent every single hospital readmission, but I think it's important to just use those numbers to compare those costs. So in the grand scheme of things, when swallow studies are needed, they're needed, and they're not nearly adding up to the expenses that thick and liquids and NPO and readmissions are racking up. You know, you put the cost of a swallow study next to a $30,000 hospital readmission, then it makes the swallow study cost really look like, why are we even arguing about this? You know, we've got bigger fish to fry and trying to keep our patients healthy um, when we're looking at just costs alone. Yep. You know, so many times they're just, you know, penny pinching day by day instead of looking at the big picture, which I think is so important. And, you know, for some of these, some of these facilities and, you know, some things that I encourage people to do. And what I had to do is really just keep data for like a whole year of for my facilities and things like that really help them to see the big picture. Because when they just look at this one patient, they think, oh, it's not worth spending you know, what is it, $400 for a mobile fees or whatever the going rate in your area is, it's not worth it. But when you look at the long-term, when you look at that patient's entire course of stay, length of stay, there's so many other pieces that go into it. Um, and, and like you said, I love that you hit on those other, those other pieces too, because I think I've really just break administrators down into, into two groups. Either they are you know, revenue driven, profit driven, which, which does matter. I mean, that's their job really is to make sure that money is coming in to pay for the patients, to pay for the care. But then the other thing is quality and you have to know which way you have to speak to your administrators. I think if they're very number driven people, then those are the numbers you have to present and don't come at them with all this patient quality data because they truly don't care. And it's not that they don't care. They just, that's not where their focus is that day. And so I don't want it to seem like they don't care because they don't, they just might be more money driven. And then vice versa, if it's a, if it's a facility, if it's an administrator that's very set on patient care, patient quality, then don't come at them with, with the financial figures. They just want to know how to help their patients the best that they can. So I think it's really important to get to know how your administrators, how your rehab directors what really are the things that make them tick? What makes them come to work every day? What are the things that are important to them? And, and really sort of tailor your argument, for lack of a better term, to that. You know, we've got to meet people halfway. We've got to do our part to get to know why are we advocating for these tests? We know why we are, but what is it going to do for them? Absolutely. And I think that there's a big disconnect with really knowing what we do. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you Truth, know, yeah. and that, you know, 
maybe it might open up some eyes um, to even know that, you know, why would a speech pathologist have a direct impact on a patient with a tube or a patient who is on thickened liquids and maybe a lack of understanding that our whole job is to try to get patients off of those restrictive things. And that that's really the majority of what we're spending our time doing with our patients. And so there might need to be a little, Hey, I'm the facility speech pathologist. This is how I directly impact my patients outcomes, which then impacts our, our overall cost. And I trust me, it was so intimidating for me to have to walk in and talk about money with, with, you know, administration at a skilled nursing facility, because again, it's just not my jam. I I'll talk clinical stuff all day long. Um, and that's really where my heart is, but I then realized, gosh, I'm just not getting anywhere. This is super discouraging. And then realizing, okay, these two things, I don't need to shy away from this. I don't need to feel like I'm this burden on my facility um, or on these facilities and that I'm racking up these astronomical costs. You, when I really sit down and look at the numbers, you know, it still blows my mind at how much money we are saving our facilities um, by being able to really navigate those waters more effectively. You know, and I've seen it in the reverse too, where we might, pick up a patient for dysphagia treatment because they're coughing and they're having some discomfort with their swallow and we do some therapy with them and they're just not getting any better. And then a swallow study is, you know, finally approved and it's found that the patient had thrush in the pharyngeal cavity the whole time. And that that was the cause of the dysphagia. And after two days of diflucan, they're quote unquote fixed. Um, so we, we spent this time treating something that didn't need to be treated. Um, and that could have easily been, you know, addressed much earlier in that patient's stay. They could have been off of those thickened liquids, um, and not receiving interventions that were unnecessary. So it goes in that direction as well, being able to show that I have to have this test to know if I even need to throw my weight <laughs> into this patient's care. And so it really goes both ways. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, one thing for me was when I finally started to learn all of this jargon and learn how to sort of talk the talk, it helped, it, it, it helped me have better conversations. Like I said, with, with the rehab directors, with the administrators, but they also really respected my opinion a lot more too, because they knew that I was considering things. Of course, I'm completely focused on the clinical aspect. Of course, that's what I want to do. But we also want to help the facility long term, too, because that's what shows our worth there. You know, are you are you someone that just clocks in, sees your patients and clocks out? Is that a terrible thing? No. But are you looking at the big picture? OK, we're on thick and liquids. OK, how are you doing? OK, no aspiration. Great. Let me move on to the next patient. Not saying that that's what people do, but some do. So. You know, I just, I, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people that are discouraged because they don't feel like they're valued. They don't, you know, feel like they're respected. And there's so much more that goes into this and in learning all these ins and outs so that you can have these really fruitful conversations with all of the parties involved too, so that they understand why you're doing the things you're doing, why you're advocating for the things you're doing, because it's going to benefit them in the long term. It's not that you're just a cranky old SLP that is demanding instrumentation. It's because there is a greater cause that benefits everybody. And I think we do a really crappy job as communication disorder specialists in communicating that. 
I okay about things through years where I'm like, wait a minute, we're supposed to be the, the communication experts here. And we're having some big time communication breakdown uh, with the way we interact with other people and amongst ourselves sometimes too. But um, yeah, it's, it, I, it was a big eye opener for me when I did outpatient, you know, I, and it's like, yeah, I could just kind of walk in and see whoever shows up on my schedule. But if there's no patients there, then I'm not getting paid. I don't have a job. So I had to just begrudgingly, you know, start to do some marketing and go out and do some things off the clock, meet with physicians, you know, do things that maybe I wasn't really expecting to have to do. Um, but then came to found, wow, this is actually kind of cool to be able to sit down with people within this community or within this building or this uh, system and really provide some more information about what it is that I do um, and how I do help these patients and why making referrals um, and building this relationship is extremely important. So it happens in other settings too. Um, I think that in the SNF world, because the way the cash flow works is so burdensome um, and that it isn't just that fee for service relationship, like we still get in an outpatient type of setting, um, that it really does muddy the waters because it's like, here's a pot of money, divvy it up the best that you can. We need some leftover to keep the lights on. What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, to best make that happen. Um, and so if we're just kind of quietly not standing up and saying, we really need this swallow study in order to make all those things happen, then of course world continued to get brushed aside because nobody wants to pay for something that's not absolutely needed. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that's kind of how the way the budgeting goes in our family too. You know, I might think that I need certain things. (laughs) And then when we sit down and look at it, it's like, actually I can go without that, you know, moving on. Um, And that's kind of how the administrators are having to handle the cash flow as well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. All right. I feel like we covered a lot of ground. You know, I am shocked to be able to tell you guys that there's even more, Yes, (laughs) that there's more on the clinical and financial value of dysphagia imaging specifically in SNF. Um, And so if y'all want to join me for the webinar, it's December 7th and it is at 4.30 Eastern, uh, 3.30 Central, and it's free to sign up. You can go on the Carolina Speech Pathology website and go to the um, education tab and go through to the uh, live webinars and you can sign up that way. And again, the course is registered with ASHA. You'll get 0.15 CEUs if you attend. And we're going to carve out a little bit of time at the end to even have some discussion about how to best advocate for swallow studies at your building. So you can come with questions, concerns, Um, you know, if you're feeling grouchy that day because you got denied access to a swallow study, come and join us and just kind of unleash all of those frustrations to the group. And then maybe there is somebody else that has kind of navigated those same waters who can provide some support and some, um, you know, information on how they were able to overcome that. So yeah, it'll be great. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Lindsay. Super appreciate you. Thank you. And thanks for everything you do. And thanks for having me again. Yes, of course. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. 
If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.